electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to save you some money. My job, not just to entertain, but to educate, put this one in perspective. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. On another ugly day on Wall Street, where the Dow shed 413 points. S&P lost 1.69%, and the Nasdaq tumbled 2.18%. Let's get one thing straight. I hate the big pivot. I despise that the large cap tech BMS have gone out of style, along with their small mid-cap enablers. But ever since November, when the Fed decided to crack down on inflation, these stocks have been dumped into the meat grinder. Now, I don't really want to pick on FANG, but it's time to retire this once great acronym that I created many years ago. If only because three out of five changed their names. These stocks, Facebook, now Meta Platforms, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Alphabet, along with Microsoft, the semiconductor stocks, and the cloud-based software plays, simply don't thrive in an environment with high inflation and rising interest rates. It's not their fault. Digitization takes a backseat to interest rates now that they keep going up. Doesn't mean they're finished. They all have fantastic growth stories. They can pivot too. But this is a market that covets value stocks. And all of these fang names, the only ones that are really cheap relative to growth rate, are Alphabet when you back out the cash and Facebook, one of which we bought today and the other I want to buy more of if it comes down. Investing club members, of course, get that call. My travel trust finished last year with a lot of tech because we thought the pain would be contained to the highest multiple growth stocks with no earnings. That's how things played out during the 2015 inflation scare. It seemed like a decent blueprint. At the same time, there were so many junk companies that came public via IPOs and SPAC deals that I thought we had a real opportunity to clean up the draws and focus on solid growth. We were doing we were done. We were done with the flying cars, the electric vehicle battery parts, multiple grills, even as I kind of like those stocks. These offerings had sucked up so much capital that they made it difficult to keep more mature growth stocks going. 
I'm thrilled that we were able to get so many people out of these formerly high-flying high price-to-sales names. Saw a bunch of people this weekend who said, hey, thank you, thank you. But what surprised me is that inflation has even gotten hotter. The market didn't turn on all things growth, not just the ones with no earnings, including the ones that trade on earnings and not just sales. Now, most of these are placed on cell phones or high-performance computing or digitization of the plumbing behind the Internet 5G. I also misjudged how much money went into crypto that I thought was ready to go back into common stocks. Can we just admit it? Crypto trades with the NASDAQ at a time when you don't want to be trading with the NASDAQ. Now, I am loath to sell all of these uh, tech growth names. That would be a mistake. I'm confident if we could just get a couple of interest rate days to stabilize, it would allow the best of the growth names to make a comeback. And we have plenty of room to buy our old favorites. But I don't see that happening, let's just say, in the near term. We're about to go into a series of terrifying inflation numbers. It's entirely possible these numbers, consumer price index, producer price index, will be better than feared since everybody fears them. But even if they're peaking, we still have a problem with food and oil inflation, courtesy of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Plus, there's a gigantic COVID outbreak in China with the government imposing a severe lockdown on the parts of the country that are most essential to the global economy. The good news is the freight rates all across, across the country and even the world are coming down. That could put a lid on some inflation, but not enough to save these big tech stocks, even as they aren't in trouble over supply chain or labor or even freight, unless they have semiconductors they're trying to get out of China. And very few have that, by the way. Most of them are locked up in Taiwan. Now, it's difficult to talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine in anything but humanitarian terms. The refugees, the death tolls, the pictures. Oh, my God, the times with pictures. It's all it's all horrific. But there's also an economic cost. Ukraine represents 13% of all the world's calories, and Russia is the most important energy exporter to Europe. If you cut off Russia's oil and gas production, that's enough for energy prices to stay elevated for a long time to come. In fact, I thought today's decline, part of it's because of the, uh, the opening of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, but part of it is just because maybe people aren't as frightened, which is wrong. Oil has given you a good chance to start doing some buying of the quality oil companies. But I want to get back to the rest of the market. I think we're still in the midst of this great reset. We have a pivot out of super growth companies, especially the biggest growth stocks, representing as much as 50% of the gains from the 2017 low. So narrow. And into a market that looks surprisingly like the old days. Broad. When we're led by a balanced group of sectors. At various times, healthcare, care, the financials would be the largest areas of investment. With tech hanging in there, but not nearly as important as it's become. And that's good. Now, I don't think this will be as bad as the tsunami of pain that blanketed all tech from 2000 to 2004. You know what it's more like? Oh, boy, gray beard. It's what happened in 1984 when tech had had a couple years run and it collapsed and it passed the torch to more traditional heirs. Or how about this one for more recent? 1991, when the Fed decided to raise interest rates, short-term rates, so that the banks could make fortunes off of their deposits. That's happening again! So let me tell you what I did today for the investing club. We cut our exposure some more after just brutal, endless exposure to tech. And a lot of them we got froze. We told people to sell them last week, but we couldn't because you know the rules. If we talk about it, we have to wait, but you can do it. Uh, we raised a lot of cash so we can profit from the pivot. As we expect financials, healthcare, industrials, oils, companies that benefit from consumer spending or an increase in the price of oil, meaning not just the actual oil, oil companies, but the service companies too. We think they're the new winners. I don't like having to do this. 
It involves trimming some of my absolute favorite stocks, also taking huge capital gains that have to get sent out to charity because of the nature of the trust. Like last year, we had to send out 570000 took these big gains. Don't get me wrong, I'm thrilled to have such big gains because it means I can help those who are struggling, including refugees escaping the brutality of the Russian invasion. Uh, I just fear that the heyday of the tech giants is over, at least until the 20-year Treasury comes down, inflation peaks, and then maybe we can pick among the techs that still work. For the moment, I do think we have to forget most of FANG, focus on the money centers, the oils, retailers with tremendous scale, health insurers, big pharma. And when I say big pharma, I mean only big pharma, absolutely not biotech, because they're the losers in the high inflation environment. And you know I like oil so much. We'll also have some scattered tech winners, the ones that get private equity bids, like a sale point or proof point today, hard to predict. We'll get excited by Elon Musk ultimately attempting to join the board of Twitter and then trying to take it over or sell it. Who the heck knows? We'll be buoyed by fintech from time to time. We'll like the travel stocks on days that oil goes down and hate them on days that it goes up. And we'll get moments where everything works, but you'll still need to stay diversified. And that's the real key. Those with too much tech need a bounce to reposition. I think you're going to get that. I really do. I, we've been saying that for the Travel Trust. We had to do some sell. You can follow it by joining the C- NBC Investing Club. We'll be doing some more. You need to be positioned with no overweighting to anything except maybe oil because the industry's newfound discipline on drilling. Oil used to have twice the weighting it has now on the S&P 500. I think it goes back to where it was, if not higher, and you should be buying. Here's the bottom line. Because there's no new money coming in to speak of and because you're not able to get an actual inflation-adjusted return on treasuries, but you might soon, the great pivot won't be funded by money over the transom. It will be financed by money managers selling expensive big tech stocks until, alas, tech becomes cheap relative to the S&P. Then and only then will we be safe running and gunning those stocks once more. George in Michigan. George. Hi, Jim. Great to talk to you. Thank you, George. What's up? Jim, a couple of months back, you were real enthusiastic about L3 Harris. Mm-hmm. And you got me interested, too, and I've been watching it for quite some time, building position in it. Now, with Ukraine being invaded, it would seem like it would be even more of a highlight for you. But I haven't heard you mention it. And what's your opinion of it now? You know what, George? You know why you haven't heard me mention it? I keep waiting for a price break. I keep thinking it'll come down and I'll be able to talk about it because you know how much I liked it. It doesn't come in. Maybe that's a sign of a really great stock. It just doesn't come in. And that is a really great stock. Let's go to Winneth in New York. Winneth. Hey, Jim. This is uh, Winneth's father. I have uh, Winneth next to me. Uh, she's 16, actually 16 today. Here we go. She's going to uh, answer your question. Hi, Mr. Kramer. I'm, my name is Winneth. I'm a sophomore at Blindbrook High School in Westchester. My question is on Ulta Beauty. The ticker is ULTA. I bought a little bit about a month ago in the 350s with the intention of adding more lower I've been surprised that the stock's gone straight up since. What are your thoughts on the stock from here? Well, this kid's got horse sense because, again, just like um, the LHX, just like uh, L3 Harris, Ulta's not come in. And yet I think Ulta's terrific. I just went into a new Ulta the other day. I could not believe how gorgeous the merchandise is, how well it's displayed. Ulta's a winner. Just like. Oh, and by, of course, happy birthday, winner. That goes without saying. I think you get, no, it's the other guy. It's Sephora. You get the stuff for your birthday. Ah. Anyway, look, I hate the pivot, but it is a reminder that we got to stay diversified. This great pivot will be funded by money managers selling expensive tech stocks 
until they drive tech down to where it's cheap relative to the S&P. Only then will be able to safely run and gun those stocks. All made money tonight. Growth at a reasonable price. That's what we're talking about. That's the new game in town. And I'm reviewing some travel and restaurant names to fit the thesis. Then could Hershey be in a sweet spot in this market amid the run of the packaged food stocks that keeps going on? I'm going to give you my take. And retail center, right? Everybody's negative. I'm turning to one of the best analysts in the street. Get his take on the sector, and you better believe it's not negative. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also, a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. For years and years, Wall Street has been in love with growth stocks. As long as the Fed was printing money and inflation was low, you could simply chase the companies with the fastest revenue growth and you usually end up with a winner. And yes, that meant tech. As I said at the top of the show, though, those days are now over. They've been over for nearly six months, ever since the Fed declared war on inflation last November. Since then, you've had to pivot into stocks with more reasonable valuations and ideally bountiful dividend yields or big buybacks. But that doesn't mean Wall Street has totally fallen out of love with all kinds of growth. In the old days, the best strategy was to chase growth at any price. Now, with the Fed tightening, the market prefers something called growth at a reasonable price or GARP 
as we used to call it in this business, and are going to start hearing and calling about that again. In other words, you want companies with better than average growth rates as long as their stocks have relatively cheap valuations to their growth rates. It's the world according to Garp. To give you an incredibly dated Robin Williams reference, not exactly a feel-good movie, by the way. No kidding around them. Garp was a fabulous way to invest for decades, but it fell out of fashion during the great fang run. On days like today, like a sun obscured by tech clouds, it's about to burst on the scene. Growth at a reasonable price is an idea we've been circling around for a while here. We just haven't really pounded the table on the concept. When I recommended Yeti a couple of weeks ago, I told you it was on track to put up double-digit earnings growth, despite only trading at 19 times earnings. That's Garp. When I highlighted the golf stocks last week, yeah, masters were great. I recommended a Cushnet, which trades at nearly 15 times earnings, even though it has a 12% growth rate. That's GARP, too. This week, I want to get more explicit in the search for growth at a reasonable valuation because it's going to be what we do for the rest of the year. So over the weekend, we ran some screens on the S&P 500 to identify the GARPiest names in the market. The plan is to roll them out over the course of the week, starting right now. And don't worry, there will be some tech names. They're coming. They're happening. We have to wait. First, we ran a growth screen. We only want companies that can put up double-digit earnings growth both this year and next year. Then we need a reasonable price, which brings us to the price-to-earnings growth multiple, or PEG ratio, as it's called. This is a metric that tells you how much we're willing to pay for a company's growth rate. So if a stock trades, say, 20 times earnings, and it's got a 20% growth rate, that gives you a PEG ratio of 1. When we're talking about a reasonable valuation, anything at 1 or less would generally be considered cheap and catch our eyes. When you combine the growth screen with the PEG rate ratio, okay, There are 51 names in the S&P 500 that pass both tests. We'll be going through our favorites over the course of the week. You probably want to jot them down because they're going to be in front of you for a long time. Tonight, though, I want to start with the travel and restaurant names because these, I see, are are groups benefiting from the great reopening, even if the Fed really hits the brakes on the uh, economy. And by the way, later on, you'll hear about some retail names, but that will be done in conjunction with Matt Boss, the axe over J.P. Morgan. Now, this is real research that we're doing here. It's not that risk-on, risk-off nonsense where we're just trying to say sell, buy, sell, buy. No, we're looking at a strong list of companies and not just tech stocks. Tonight, I've got six travel and restaurant plays that pass this GARP test I just went over. Why don't we start? And remember, a lot of these are going to sound like, what are you, crazy? But you have to remember, this is a reopening. Don't let everything be obscured by, by inflation or Russia or China lockdown. It's just not the case when it comes to the consumer. So let's start with Expedia, an ultimate consumer name. It's the online travel agency. Obviously, Expedia took a huge hit in 2020, but it returned to profitability last year, growing like a weed, even as the numbers were still far below 2019. That was the last full year before the pandemic. The bull case here is very straightforward. This year, Expedia should finally get almost all the way back to 2019's revenue levels with much higher profitability. And that's because of management's self-improvement efforts. So many great companies did this during the pandemic. They put through ways to be able to save money. A lot of them brought in technology, like the technology stocks we often talk about. Because of the travel recovery, this company's on track to have 364% earnings growth this year. And the numbers are expected to soar over the next few years. So you're getting a remarkable growth rate, even as expected. Expedia stock currently sells for 24 times this year's earnings estimates. While the most recent quarter was fantastic, the stock's pulled back hard since Russia invaded Ukraine. I get that. And I think you're getting an incredible bargain here because of that. Because there is still travel away from Russia and Ukraine. Second GARP name, 
one that I don't talk about much at all, Booking Holdings. And that's the company formerly known as Priceline, which also owns Open Table for Restaurant Reservations. This is basically the same story as Expedia. You got rapid earnings growth and a relatively cheap stock that should benefit enormously as travel comes back. The big difference between Booking and Expedia, Booking is more internationally oriented. They've got greater exposure to faster growing emerging markets in Asia and Latin America. However, now that we're worried about a worldwide slowdown, that overseas exposure could be a bit of a liability, as is COVID in China. Still, Booking has come down 20% from its highs in uh, all-time highs, really, in mid-February. So I think that these international ways are already being baked in. Now, I mean, the risk-averse person would go for Expedia versus Booking Holdings. Third is one that I've long since liked but stopped talking about, Marriott, Marriott International. While this hotel chain hasn't made it back to pre-pandemic levels yet, its most recent quarter was nothing short of spectacular. They've been adding capacity all over the globe, so they're bullish, and they're poised to benefit as the world goes back to normal. Just as important, Marriott suspended its dividend in 2020, not long after COVID hit. There's a very good chance they'll bring the dividend back this year, something management specifically mentioned on the most recent conference call. While Marriott's on the expensive side, trading at just under 30 times earnings, it still passes our GARP test thanks to its fabulous earnings growth rebound. And hey, the stock's down about 12% from its February highs. Remember, we are con- this is our concept. Don't worry if you're not familiar with it yet. It's going to be where we are going forward. Fourth, one that I've really struggled with for my charitable trust, but I don't care. I know it's got some issues involving some things that were said that I didn't like, but we're taking back. Disney. Yes, Walt Disney, a stock we own for the charitable trust. Now, this one has been a real slug, but with travel coming back and the company's investments in the Disney Plus streaming service paying off, 2022 is set to be a huge earnings year for these guys in the second half, most definitely. I certainly like it more than that discovery that was spun off from ATT. Just today, Bank of America raised their estimates for Disney, citing a strong outlook for the theme parks business and a better slate of content in the second half. Sometimes it feels like Disney just can't catch a break, right? When COVID was raging, it was a travel stock. When COVID started to wane, suddenly it was a COVID stock because of the streaming business. I mean, I think we should just focus on the fact that Disney's got a franchise. It's a cheap stock with excellent growth prospects. Join the club. Follow our bulletins. I hope our next move will be a buy in Disney. Because we do want to be bigger, but we want to be price sensitive. Fifth is one that I used to love. Stop talking about because of food inflation. And that's Darden, the parent of Olive Garden, Longhorn Steakhouse, and Capitol Grill, along with a few smaller concepts. While Darden's most recent quarter was disappointing, that's because they took a big hit from the Omicron variant. It's now behind them. They've also been plagued by food inflation. We know that. We hear that endlessly. But if, like me, you believe that inflation could peak maybe in the second half, and the world's going to go back to normal, then Darden can take share and take names if you buy it now. You can't wait for food inflation to come down, for heaven's sake. Plus, thanks to the stock's recent sell-off, it now trades at 17 times earnings, juicy 3.5% dividend yield, one of the best-run companies in the restaurant industry. It's paying you to wait. Don't worry about gasoline. It used to be a big factor, but as cars get more miles to the gallon, it's a much smaller issue. I know this because I've covered the company since 1982. Finally, there's Cisco. That's the SYY kind. Cisco, the big food distributor that serves the restaurant industry. Boy, do I know these guys. Like Darden, Cisco's coming off an earnings miss. Didn't help that 10% of the workforce tested positive for COVID in January. But we've now gotten over the Omicron strain and business is going back to normal. Cisco's really a last man standing situation, other than, you know, U.S. foods. 
Look, they've taken a ton of market share from everybody during this very difficult period for the restaurant industry. That's one reason their earnings are on the track to double this year. With the stock selling for just under 28 times earnings with amazing management, I think you found a good one in this Cisco. Now, here's the bottom line. I need you to get used to the world according to Garb, okay? It's the new old way to invest. People don't talk about it at all. All they do is talk about the semis, the semis, the semis. And yes, I did create FANG, so I guess I got to live with that. I've got a bunch of names that offer growth at a reasonable price, and you're going to hear about them all as the week goes on. But for now, the garpiest stocks in the travel and leisure space are Expedia, Booking Holdings, Marriott, International, Disney, Darden, and Cisco. Yes, there will be some garp tax, but they're coming down to make them even garpier. Mad Money's back after the break. Coming up, how sweet it is. Kramer has a take on Hershey that will melt in your mouth. Next. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. It's one thing to recommend the stocks of companies that make things and do stuff for a profit. My new theme. It's another thing to figure out which, which of them are actually cheap enough to be worth buying. When I came up with that mantra in November, I was trying to express a newfound skepticism about richly valued companies that were being valued based on their sales, not their non-existent earnings. There are moments when those kinds of stocks make superb investments. For years, these things were big winners. But those moments do not include the times when the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, and we don't like to fight the Fed. As I've been telling you for months, higher rates are anathema to long-dated assets, where you're paying up for potentially big profits that are many years down the road. Ever since November, we've seen these unprofitable stocks just collapse. And assuming the stock market doesn't show mercy, some of these companies might even run out of money. The list of IPOs from class of 2021 is full of portfolio-crushing albatrosses. We've had it with them until inflation runs its course. We can't, we can't be sure how long that process will take. I actually think it will be shorter than most people expect. Still, I can't get behind these price-to-sale stocks until the Fed stops raising interest rates or at least bonds stop going up in, uh, in price in terms of the yield. I mean, up in the yield and down in price. See, what's happened is, it's, oh, you just got to well, look, is this 20 or 30? When you see these bonds it just go down and the rates go up, you can't buy those stocks. Okay, so let's think about this. Though. How about the profitable companies? All right, so many of them have been mowed down on bad days that we felt it necessary to add another criteria. I initially, I told you to circle the wagons around companies that make real things or provide real services at a profit. 
A month later, I said you should also return those profits to shareholders via dividends or buybacks. We're looking for those kinds of companies that reward you. Too many profitable companies are not inclined to reward their shareholders because they'd rather invest that money in growing the business. I'm dubious about that strategy right now, especially if it causes them to lose money. That's no go. We're not buying those anymore. Then last week is the list of companies that we now like broaden because stocks have come down along with interest rates going higher. We realized we needed to add another criteria. Is the company stock too expensive? So many of the S&P 500 companies are profitable and pay dividends or buyback stocks that I feel like we've been too generous with our rubric. That's why earlier I talked about GARP. Now, another thing I want to talk about is the relative nature of expensive. Because in some industries, it's not enough to know that the price-to-earnings ratio is, say, less than the average stock in the S&P 500. That's always been a decent gauge that people use. For example, in an odd twist of fate, the consumer packaged goods stocks, they're all running. I say odd because... Think about it. If inflation really is accelerating, you expect to get see this group getting crushed. In a rampant inflation scenario, these stocks would be the worst to own. They're trapped by rising raw costs that they can't pass along to their customers, at least not completely. doesn't matter. If we go with the flow, the prevailing belief that the consumer packaged goods stocks, you know, the companies that make things you can eat or wash with or use to look and smell better, well, they'll have a hard time passing on the costs. Then you need to incorporate that into the context of what's worth owning in this environment. What still succeeds? Hershey. Yes, Hershey. It brings me to Hershey. Now, one of the best-kept secrets of this market is how well this company, this simple confectionery maker, has done in the era of inflation. Put simply, Hershey is the best performer in the group by any measure. But it's never talked about. Because it's been such a terrific performer, by the way, there's now a bias against it. When you look at the analyst coverage, there are more holds and fewer buys on Hershey than almost any other consumer packaged goods name. They think it's too obvious, too played out. I beg to disagree. When you consider these stocks, you need to think about not where they've been trading versus the S&P 500, but something far more tricky. You need to be thinking about what's called the rate of change of sales and earnings. We don't need the absolute level of performance. We care about the rate of change in the big numbers. And on that front... There's no beating Hershey. Hands down, no beating Hershey. For the longest time, this stock was just a dog. It was a perennial takeover target where any deal could be blocked by the trustees who ran the company because the founder set up a trust agreement many years ago. Hershey was never really an earnings story because it was such an endless underachiever. <laughs> but then a new CEO came in, Michelle Buck. She changed all that when she took over in 2017. She immediately set out to grow the franchise. That had not been a priority. Extend the brands. Hey, ladies, shoppers include Reese's, potato chips, I don't know, some zero sugar products. And then use the cash flow to not only reward shareholders, but to acquire other companies with an emphasis on salty snacks. Things that you're all familiar with. Pirate's Booty, Skinny Pop. Most recently, Dots, pretzels. Now, I thought these acquisitions were expensive at the time. I knew these companies when they were much cheaper, much smaller, when they were private equity. Before they grew, I owned a popcorn company myself. I was jealous of these guys, but it looks like Buck was now. It looks like she's clairvoyant. Because these were the perfect pickups as COVID hit the nation and turned us all into stay-at-homers who snacked. That's been a big positive. You know what draws so many investors uh, is to Hershey, though? It's something called brand equity. 
While other companies have seen their margins get severely compressed by the usual goblin supply chain, labor, and royal costs, this company's been barely dinged by them. And that's because Hershey has awesome pricing power. Not to mention the fact that there's really no serious private label competition. You ever, you ever buy, like, Joe Blow to- chocolate? I don't know. They've got kind of an unassailable position. And because of that, Hershey's been able to rack up 8 to 10% sales growth while generating the best gross margins in the industry. Put it all together, and it's given you 105% total shareholder return over the last three years. Thanks to Buck's management, Hershey's got the fastest rate of change in the industry. However, after this run, it's also got the highest price earnings multiple in the group. As these le- at these levels, the valuation can only be justified if the company generates still more accelerated growth. Of course, I think Buck will give you precisely that via these salty snack acquisitions. Hey, by the way, I'd love to see her buy the now deflated Uts. Plus, Hershey's still got tremendous pricing power. Buck can, pray, uh, can raise price, and there seems to be no resistance to it. In a talk she gave recently, all the analysts were trying to poke holes in this, but they couldn't. You know why? Because your gross margins are, worth, are, 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 are incredible. Hershey's is 45% gross margins. By comparison, Mondelez, very well-run company, 39.2. Kraft Heinz, 32.3. General Mills, look at that. Stocks at 70 now, 32.8. Kellogg, 32.5. Campbell Soup, okay, 31.5. A lot of room there. Now, what an amazing lead, especially given that Mondelez is doing so well. Yet Mondelez doesn't come close. Again, that's because Hershey can raise price with impunity across its whole product line. Can you still buy the stock? You're a great question. Given that it sells at 28 times earnings, it's the highest in the group. I think you can buy it. There are too many holes in the stock versus what Buck has given you. And this is Hershey's strongest suite, shy of Halloween. None other than Easter, which has more shelf space devoted to their product than ever. In fact, we were hunting for some Hershey Easter products. Some are awfully hard to find. I think it could be the best Easter ever, and numbers are too low. Now, does that make Hershey's stock cheap? No. But the bottom line is this. Hershey's is the most consistent growth stock in a group where safety's first. And you know what they say, safety never takes a vacation. I would buy some here, then wait to buy more if the stock gets hit the next time we have an inflation scare because they've got the pricing power to weather any pricing storm. Can you believe I'm not talking about a semiconductor? I'm not talking about chips. I'm talking about Reese's chocolate chips. Let's go to David and Florida, please. David. David. Yes. Hi, Jim. I'm calling about BGS Food. Uh, I'm a little concerned about it. I own it at its high. I own it at its low, but it just doesn't seem to be going anywhere. No. And you know what? I've got to tell you, it was a favorite of mine. They used to come on air, and then the next thing you know, they stopped. And you know something, David? That's not okay with me. I mean, you can come on air all you want, but be consistent. Don't just come on when it's good. Be consistent. Explain us what's going on, B&G Food, so I can help David, okay? I want to help David, and you should want to help David, all right? And you know that I've got welcome you on the show. Now, I have found a sweet stock in this market. I think you can buy Hershey stock here and then wait to buy more if the stock gets hit. The next time someone says, ooh, inflation scare, when they have pricing power, it doesn't really matter. Now, speaking of pricing power, we got much more money ahead, but exclusive with J.P. Morgan retailer's Matt, Matt Boss. Fresh off the big bank's retail conference, you better not get too negative. I'm hearing more about trends in the sector with one of the street's best, and he's got some good ones. Then we need to reframe this whole thing about the great resignation. In a more positive light, please, I'm giving you my new phrase for the trend. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. The 
the last few weeks, the retailers have been hammered as Wall Street worries about rampant inflation, eating discretionary spending, possibly the Fed-mandated recession. But at some point, you've got to wonder if they've been punished enough, which is why we need to consult an expert, maybe the expert. Last week, J.P. Morgan held its eighth annual retail roundup conference, where they hosted executives from scores of retailers. Tonight, we're checking in with the host of that event, Matt Boss, the head of J.P. Morgan's department store and especially Softline's team, and for my money, the best retail analyst in the industry. Mr. Boss, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks for having me back, Jim. Okay, so Matt, I've read all your reports, and it's very clear you've been in touch with all the whole panoply of retailers that perhaps Wall Street's more gloomy about the consumer than is the reality. Tell us. I think you nailed it. The overarching theme from this year's retail roundup was a resilient consumer. You you couldn't miss it. Um, I would say it's a balanced tone from the management teams. And what's interesting, this resilient consumer actually matches our Chase consumer proprietary data. March for the consumer spending was up 8%. That's actually 100 basis points better than February. And that's double the pace of pre-pandemic spending. Now, you're seeing shifting. You are seeing a consumer that's spending on return to occasion, return to work. You're seeing home and more larger ticket furniture that's under a bit more pressure. So there's shifts in the underlying consumer But the macro is strong. It's led by employment. Wages are higher. And the consumer right now can work as many hours as they like, especially that low to middle income consumer. So consumer resiliency, that was the name of the game this past week at our retail roundup with nearly 20 companies attending and and others that we've spoken to across the space. All right. So give us a a sense of who is taking advantage of the situation and really is being a standout, particularly maybe some companies that we haven't talked about much because they they weren't able to capitalize before. Yeah. So I would say, Jim, the, the retail playbook, as we think about it from here, there's a couple buckets, I would say, at the low income demographic. And I think that's where people have a lot more concern across Wall Street. We had Dollar General. Dollar General was talking about a full employment situation a wage rate that is a dollar higher year over year, which gives that consumer an extra $125 of discretionary income, as well as, again, the number of hours worked in that core consumer's uh, control. I would put five below in that camp, dollar tree in that camp. That's how we see the low income demographic playing out on the winner's side. I think secondarily, you want to stick with strong brands with pricing power. That for us would be Nike, Lululemon. I would put Levi's in there. And then in the specialty camp, that's where I see Bath and Body Works as a standout. I know that you flagged this one last week. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would also see Victoria's Secret in that camp. And then you have some of these other apparel, uh, I would say more uh, a step down in terms of, you know, where we go from here. That's where I would put some of the uh, more value oriented and American Eagle trading at sub three times EBITDA. Uh, to me, there's strategic alternatives that come into play at that kind of valuation. Well, let, let's talk about the latter because, you know, my travel trust owns it. I haven't paid much attention to it because I wanted it to come down to where the level might be that it's silly. OK, I look at that company with the balance sheet, with the dividend, which is the you know, great yield and with the optionality. And I think, OK, it's gotten silly, Matt. I, I don't know how that happened, though. Yeah, look, there's another bucket, as you brought up, balance sheets for the retailers that I cover. If I hold at the debt to EBITDA levels that we're at today using minimum cash balances, we calculate that roughly my group 
could buy back 20% of the float in the next two years. American Eagle stands on that list. Abercrombie would be on that list. A number uh, of different global brands, as I look at Tapestry and Capri, companies that come out with higher margin profiles, even after the promotional activity that is so feared does come back. Look, retail will be promotional. Pricing competitiveness will come back. But you're, going, you're coming out of this with brands that have stronger control of their distribution, better balance sheets, and that's what we're focused on. Winners on the other side, and with multiples, to your point, as you look at, it, at an American Eagle and a number of different retailers that we cover, on average, our group is trading four to five turns below where they were pre-pandemic. And nearly every company that we cover has strengthened their margin profile and has less debt in terms of debt leverage on the balance sheet going forward with stronger cash flow profiles. Well, Matt, one last question. Uh, there's a tremendous disconnect between you and what people on Wall Street are thinking. The way I resolve it is that you're in the trenches. You speak to every one of these companies. Other people are viewing it top down. They're looking at the Fed, they're looking at gasoline prices. May they be sending a false tell to people who don't do the dirty work like you do? Again, there's a number of moving pieces right now, uh, I would say. For me, as we think about it, and, you know, we try to take the macro and the micro, uh, as well as the data. And here at J.P. Morgan, as we look at the underlying consumer credit data, it remains strong through March. Now, where do we go from here? That's where I think the employment picture comes in. And I'll tell you, across the companies that were at our conference, That, to me, is the primary hinge. You have a full employment backdrop, wages that are higher. So the incoming dollars in terms of the number of hours that the consumer can work are in the consumer control. And to me, that is the that's the current consumer psychology. They're not happy about paying higher prices at the pump. They're not happy about paying more for groceries. But the incoming dollars remain in their control. And I think that is why we're seeing stability in consumer spending today and why there's a cautiously optimistic tone from the retailers that I cover as we think about the back half of the year. All right, I'm going to leave it there because that's precisely where I am, and mostly because I read your stuff, and your stuff is so on point and so current that I wish everybody did, rather than make top-down judgments that are often incorrect. Matt Boss, head of J.P. Morgan's uh, retailing department stores and specialty soft lines team, and the man who underneath the, who understands this group, and we call him the Axe. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks again, Jim. Man, money's back here for the break. No need for a meteorologist. Today's forecast calls for thunder and lightning. The lightning round is next. It is time to the And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? I'm going to start with Tom in Colorado. Tom. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I've taken your advice on most of my portfolio, including my number one holding, Costco. You always say buy stocks that make money. Yes. However, I got caught up in DraftKings. I have a pretty big position at $38. What's your advice about my position? and the stock. All right, so Tom, remember, we never care about where the stocks come from. We care about where it's going to. They are in a battle. 
a pure battle to try to get market share. And right now, there is no sign that the battle is over. So you're going to take some suffering until they win. But I do think they'll win. Let's go to John in Florida. John. Jim, hey, thanks for taking my call. I got into this stock right after the stack at about 20 bucks. I traded out of it at 16, got back in at 10, thinking it can't go any lower. Now sitting at seven bucks. What do I do with SoFi? Oh my. Okay, so SoFi can't catch a break because you know the main business was student loan, and if, if they're you know the president's saying, listen, you don't have to pay for now, well then they get hurt. Yes, I felt the same thing, though. Anthony Noto is so good. I felt it at nine. And I said here, I didn't even go much lower. Well, I was wrong. Um, it's seven and a half. I can't tell you to sell it, but I also can tell you maybe I'm not the answer on this stock because, holy cow, it hasn't stopped, and I thought it would have. Let's go to Callum in Washington. Callum. Hey, booyah, Jim. Booyah. I'm here to ask you about the stock EDIT. Um, no, see, gene editing... It is, I'm not saying it's a fad. I think sheet editing is great, but I am saying that you cannot buy growth stocks that have no hope of making money. Not in this environment. Not no way, no how. Jeff in Hawaii, Jeff. Well, booyah and aloha from the Big Island. Well, mahalo I will get to right you. to my question. Okay. Um, I have a daughter, 17. My son is 14. They got money for Christmas. Uh, I kind of searched around, talked to a few of my relatives, and they gave me a few options. And I looked at Altria to start them off. They'll only get like 10 shares apiece, but at least it's a start. And what would you suggest? Well, a problem with that one with Altria is, again, it is tobacco. uh, And that's not what I'm fond of. If I didn't mind, it is a good one. It is a good one because it's got good yield and it's got decent growth. But I do mind. But you know what? If you don't care, then it's fine. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, from the great resignation to the great liberation, Kramer has the upsides and downsides to a new world of work. Next. We should stop talking about the great resignation and start talking about the great liberation. The great resignation thing makes it sound like people just quit their jobs for parts unknown. I take a much more positive view. Workers took advantage of their time in lockdown to rethink their entire existence. The freedom to not come into the office gave you plenty of time to plan your next move. We know that the next move happens in many cases to be starting your own business. According to Paychex, there's been an incredible number of newly formed businesses. That's part of the great liberation. I think a huge part of the difficulty of finding qualified workers is that these are precisely the kinds of talented individuals who saved enough money to start their own enterprise. I find this quite exciting. Some of the great liberation involves people who want to make things but never could make a living doing it until this new era of self-empowerment technology. Take Shopify. Now it's a 10 for 1 stock split. And while it's been more than cut in half from its highs, the Canadian company allows small businesses to make products and then easily sell them online. The whole process was much more difficult, time-consuming, and expensive before Shopify. 
At the same time, how about if you want to make your own handicrafts and list them on Etsy? COVID gave you the opportunity. With Shopify and Etsy, along with software from Adobe or Wix, your online presence can be equal to the largest of stores, and you can build a decent business and a good livelihood with freedom. Finally, if the rise of remote work means you can live wherever you want, that allows you to reconfigure your whole life in a new place. Hey, maybe put a shingle out. Maybe get some venture capital money for that idea of yours. Something that never would have happened before the pandemic. Now, there is one downside to the great liberation. If you're creating a shop, say you're creating a restaurant, your prices have probably increased by a minimum of 30% for everything, for food, for workers, especially those who are in the so-called back of the joint, like dishwashers or early stage cooks. At the same time, most restaurants used to make their money selling marked up drinks. But customers have learned they can just order food directly to their homes via DoorDash or soon Wonder Truck, then get their booze from the grocery store for a fraction of the cost. As someone who's been a small proprietor, I can tell you that with food and labor so expensive, opening your own restaurant feels like a pretty Pyrrhic liberation. But you don't know that until you try it for yourself. As I see it, the Great Liberation has two tremendous consequences. One, it gives people a shot to be their own boss, which I can tell you is such a fabulous thing, especially when it's staked by the government. The other is that all workers have more bargaining power across the entire country. Consider the case of Starbucks. Despite some of the most generous pay packages on earth, there's a powerful movement to unionize. Now, it's still small right now. But it's quite telling that the return of CEO Howard Schultz came at the expense of shareholders who benefited from a monster buyback. I know the company has generous 401k plans, but the optics of the gains for shareholders, while baristas have never worked so hard, meant that it was time to tip the scales to the workers and retire the buyback. I'm sure that the Great Liberation played a huge role. What barista wouldn't want to take a shot at having their own coffee shop? So let's stop it with the resignation stuff. Instead, I want to cheer the people who are taking advantage of this economy to liberate themselves and run their own business. Call me crazy. But when I see more entrepreneurs and bigger paychecks, I think it's a good thing. I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.